0: The old adage goes that rules were meant to be broken, which means that taboos were meant to be broken. Hypocrisy was meant to be revealed. And some people break taboos and break the rules uh, so that they can change the rules, change the system, or so that we can eliminate prejudice, Uh, There are all sorts of positive ways people break taboos. Um, I used to do it just in everyday conversation. I would make really inappropriate jokes um, under the assumption that if you knew who I was, you would understand that the joke, um, because they say every joke has a kernel of truth to it. That's what makes it funny. But sometimes really taboo jokes... The, the truth that makes it funny is the fact that it's taboo and that you shouldn't be saying it. And so I would think that anyone who knew me knew that that was the joke, was that we're both self-aware that this shouldn't be said out loud. But then there are the taboo breakers um, who are young, who just do what they want, you know, couldn't care less, carefree, I don't play by anyone's rules, that kind of thing. And this can be naive and innocent, or it can be as cruel as, um, desecrating a sacred site or graffitiing over something that would be expensive to fix or is completely inappropriate and people walking by with little children would have to see it, you know, whatever, that sort of thing. But there is a type of taboo breaker who's not exactly any of those. Well, I guess more in line with, I do what I want, I do whatever I want. But as an adult... Um, the adult who wears breaking taboos on their sleeve, so to speak, they're usually boisterous. Sometimes you see them on social media, you know, they'll make posts and say, you know, I just did such and such thing and I don't even care. And if you don't like it, defriend me, you know, that, that kind of thing, um, where they declare constantly their own maverick nature. Now, I can't recall if I've ever been that type of person, but I know I've come close in terms of, um, I know I used to, um, tell stories from my own life that would sort of put me on a pedestal or make me seem cool, or so I thought, that were like, whoa, you did what? What a rule breaker. You should own a motorcycle. Um, but even when I would do that, I would feel self-conscious about it. So I was never really, you know, I didn't do that a lot and I stopped pretty quickly in life because, uh, I was far too self-conscious to, um, to want to talk about myself that way. But there are people who are completely unconscious about it and it looks as though it appears as though they do it because they think. It makes them look cool or you're you're going to think they're a somebody or a Maverick or, you know, Arthur Fonzarelli from Happy Days. Yes, I just dated myself. Um, <laughs> hey, the Fonz. But I think if you follow the train here, you'll see that there's a deeper insecurity. And, and follow it in your own life. If you have been one of these people, especially, or are one of these people now. Uh, if, if you're cringing right now and, and tempted to turn this off, then probably you're one of those people. Um, let's see why you do it. Why do you do it? Why do we? Isn't it because we're insecure? This is one reason. We're insecure with ourselves. We need to prop ourselves up. Usually doing that, although you're speaking to someone else in a conversation, it isn't for them. It isn't even for them to prop you up. For some people, it is. For some people, it's all about getting the reaction. But I've noticed that for most people in that category of uh, telling everyone what mavericks they are and what taboo breakers they are, um, it's more about telling themselves that as a means to glance over how they really feel about themselves. And let's face it, most of the time in conversations with others, we're really talking to ourselves. We're really talking about ourselves. We're not meeting each other. We have an image of another and we meet, we meet that image, but that image is self projected. And a lot of times that image um, it's, there's a lot more us put into it than the so-called other. Now, that's not my opinion. That's a fact, right? Um, And you can see these facts uh, in extreme cases. They really present themselves. So an extreme case of someone who puts themselves into another, (laughs) an extreme example would be, uh, you know, a mentally ill person who hears what they want to hear and takes offense and starts a fight with you, you know? Or if you want to go the pop culture way, uh, Joe Pesci's character in Goodfellas, are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? Um, That sort of building up, amping up a fight to mask your own insecurities. Um, But that's an extreme example because those are uh, sociopathic personalities, right? But if you go to the other end of that psychological scale, um, we're not talking about sociopaths, we're talking about you and me. Well, hopefully. Hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully we're not sociopaths. Okay. Now, if we deconstruct ourselves, what will we find? We'll find that our behavior, to the extent that it's a problem, will come from somewhere somewhat unique to all of us. But the root of it isn't unique, because the root of it is us. The root of of all of our ills are us. Um, I mean, the collective humanity. And so if we go back to the graphic equalizer analogy from the introductory episode, uh, if your psychological template were a graphic equalizer, you'd have certain emotional states or attributes on there. Um, That are common to all. And whatever experiences you have going through life, especially early life, um, sets them, sets the graphic uh, equalizer to whatever frequency, up or down the chain, you may have more or less of, for instance, depression or happiness as your base self, the person that greets the world that, you know, can feel some of the other states and qualities on, uh, of the graphic equalizer, but will always snap back into this uh, locked position until such time as something changes something drastic. I mean, because obviously we have different circumstances that put us in different moods. I mean, if you're on vacation, you're liable to uh, be different than when you're at work. Right. But once you go back to your normal life, uh, you snap back into position, right? Nothing's truly changed. And how many people have gone through this with um, various forms of self-help and therapy where something is alleviated, um, something of depression is alleviated, but another thing rears its head because the graphic equalizer is set. Thanks, mom and dad, you know. But with something like taboo breaking, it doesn't necessarily go back to mom and dad. This can go back to... Um, Peer pressure, how you were ma- how you were made to feel about yourself in school, um, and you're despite what your parents may have told you. You know, some people have very loving, kind parents, and if they're considered socially awkward, or if they're poor uh, in a school that is not poor, um, or if they are, you know, different in any way, racially, sexually. Whatever it is, Uh, they'll get picked on. It doesn't matter how much parents love them. And um, this forms you and especially the the push pull of coming home and, you know, your parents, your authority figures are telling you what wonderful, loving, um, what a wonderful, loving person you are. And there's nobody else like you. And those other kids are just jealous and all that. Um, But then you've got the fact, the reality of your social situation, which at that point in your life, when you're a little kid in school, um, that is you. You know, no one wants to be judged harshly, let alone, let alone bullied, right? Like, this is all important in your life. This is your life. School, kids, friends. Who am I in this? And so it can, it can stem from even that, that push-pull of, of the, the dichotomy between home life and, and school life, if it goes that way for you, right, in your own life. Where maybe you want to impress the kids, right? So maybe, maybe you do things uh, that are rule-breaking. Or maybe you are the person who's got the weed. You know, maybe you become the stoner kid with the weed who's the hookup, the fix. You become that guy. You bring the alcohol to the party. You're that guy. You've got cigarettes. <laughs> you know? Uh, and there it begins. There's how you get your social approval. Of course, if your parents are um, completely abusive and your school situation is completely abusive and you don't see a way out, then you can just become taboo breaking, completely self-destructive and destructive of others. You can become the bully. Um, You know, we know all of these things, right? But I didn't have those problems. So for me, it was more experimental. It's more finding out who do you want to be as you're telling a story about your own life um, and you see what gets a reaction and what gets a reaction is the the sort of no way moment of rule breaking. Um, then you want to tell that story again and again, you want to get that reaction. Right. Um, but the more you do it, the more you realize that you're a fraud because I mean, if you're self-aware at all, then you realize, Oh wait, I'm a fraud. Uh, This probably wasn't really that cool. And is it worth now going out and trying to recreate this sense of status or being put on a pedestal or being loved, you know, quote unquote, let's put that in quotes, loved uh, by the people listening to the story or being awe inspiring, um, being mysterious, whatever it is. Is, is that the road you want to go down? Because then you become that person who has to seek that stuff out, some sort of taboo, breaking, even thrill-seeking seeker, just so that you can have stories, just so that you can feel good about yourself. You know, and I think that sometimes we try these things on as we get older. We're, we're trying on different um, outfits until we find the one that works. And um, they're all dysfunctional, don't get me wrong. And so what is the frequency band in the audio signal of the graphic equalizer that is behind all of this? What is it that we all have in common? Well, some of you know it as one of the deadly sins. Others of you um, embrace it and think it's a good quality to have its pride, isn't it? Self-satisfaction with what you're doing or um, a talent that you may have Right? This is what we associate with pride. But the self-satisfaction. I did this. I accomplished something. I am accomplished. I stand out and apart from the conformists. This um, taboo-breaking persona. I do whatever I want, man. Too cool for school. Rules. There are no rules where I'm going. That is the pride of the loner, or at least one who wants you to believe they don't need anybody else. So pride, coupled with loneliness, this is the other ingredient, the other, the other frequency band. If these are set to a certain level, <laughs> out pops the version of uh, the Fonz who actually lacks confidence. And is covering that over by pretending to be super confident. So confident in themselves, they don't need anyone else. They don't even need to listen to rules or tradition or what anyone else has to say. Anyone else's input. They do the thing that you've always wanted to do, but just weren't brave enough to do it. Except that's not why they're doing it. They're doing it because... They're hurt. And that hurt produces a brand of cowardice that is supposed to look like bravery. The cowardice is you don't want to face yourself. The bravery is you break the laws of everyone else that everyone else abides by. Because whatever makes you feel good in this life, man, you only get one life, you only get to live once. Live free or die. Bring on the facial tattoo, man. I don't know why I keep giving the taboo breaker that voice. (laughs) Or even making it male. I mean, certainly, there are plenty of women falling into the same category. There is no gender bias in hurt. Or in seeking freedom from it by flipping the bird to society. And truly, that is what we seek. Freedom. Freedom. We seek that which we don't have, freedom, right? And in this case, the freedom is the freedom from the bondage of the ghosts of our past that just sort of keep us chained up in the basement and whip us down and tell us we're nobody and make us feel lonely. And instead of dealing with that, instead of looking in that mirror or blowing away those ghosts, we take on... A crass advocacy for outward freedom, social freedom. No one tells me what to do. And of course, that also becomes a way to keep people at a distance, people who are going to see through you. And that hurts because when people see through you, what they're seeing to is the real you and the real you is an amalgamation of hurt parts, hurt little people along the way to becoming an adult. That's the real self. But what we we don't realize when we look at other people and say, I see the real you, we're not looking at us. So even the person who's looking at you and saying, I see the real you isn't looking at themselves. Because if we looked at ourselves, we would see that this hurt child or bunch of children inside this amalgamation, the self isn't the real me. It's the me I'm working with. (laughs) It's the me I know. But that me is dysfunctional. It's unhealthy. And once it's healthy and no longer dysfunctional, once we are functioning properly, it's not you in control anymore. Because the you is those problems, is those hurt, is that graphic equalizer, is those bands of frequency. Right? So And that's an analogy. I don't mean to get all new agey like we have a frequency. I mean, we're not talking about that. Um, It's an analogy. So what we're saying here is that while we're searching for this real me through healing our psychological wounds, let's say you healed them all. Well, you'd feel pretty good, except again, a new bad head would pop up, a new Leviathan in your life, a new thing to be angry about, depressed about, jealous about, and then sporadically happy about, or, you know, all of that. Because sorrow is the birthright of the dysfunctional me, the dysfunctional self. And when we say that, we think that there's something that we can do to make it functional, something that we can do to get ourselves healthy, but we can't. And so we know we can't. And so we call it human nature. And just like, You know, we're always creating an artificial version of what we know we lack. So, with freedom, along comes America, (laughs) the founding fathers, to write these words down, these words of freedom, um, to have this ideal society on paper, because we don't have it inside. And so, we cover that over by saying, well, that's just human nature. It's human nature, so we need these laws, we need a Bible. We need a constitution, we need a form of therapy, and we need that forever, because human nature dictates that we will always, um, the the most healthy we can be psychologically is um, slightly less neurotic than a really, really neurotic person. Really? Like, that's the best we can do? Well, it is, in a way, the best we can do, because... That is you trying to do something about dysfunction, about uh, being unhealthy. But the being itself, the me itself, the ego persona is the unhealthy. So there is no you separate from that that can do something about it. When you create that further dichotomy, that further splintered off piece of you that looks at you and goes, I got to do something about this you're furthering the dysfunction, even if you make life a little bit better for a minute. It's only through understanding not just why the levels are set the way they are in the graphic equalizer analogy, which has to do with your personal past, which has to do with your culture, your society, or all of that. That's why the levels are set. But why do the levels exist at all? Why is there a graphic equalizer? Well, that is common to all of us. We are expressions of mind. We are thought. And we're always looking for bigger and bigger mind, right? We're always looking for a higher self that's the real self. We don't want to be thought. We don't want our emotions to control us or our thoughts to control us. We want to be separate from them. We want to be in control of them. Or we want to be a a completely different entity who is wearing this mask because it decided to come here to learn, to Earth to learn something. Oh, life is a school. Um, or to feel. It needed to put on a, a mask of amnesia and come here to feel a certain way. Some people believe that they were, um, that they were the programmers, programmers of their own lives, right? And that they chose this life to experience these things and so on. We make up all sorts of things. But it's interesting to me that we see that we are conscious, uh, self-conscious, and then we've got this automated consciousness in our bodies where, you know, they just seem to know what to do on their own without us having to think about it. We've got reflexive reactions. We've got the split between the conscious and the unconscious. We've got all these levels of consciousness going on in the one body. And then there are other organisms, right? Uh, All around us, all of life, is living, breathing consciousnesses. There may be other species that we don't know about, but at least what we do know about is us, that we are uh, the pinnacle species on Earth in terms of consciousness, in terms of our ability to relate to uh, everything else that we at least can sense. Uh, We can relate with them, if we so choose course, many of us choose to block block it off, but um, we look at heart cultures, and heart cultures completely are immersed in relating with what we would call in the West the environment. They call these nations of beings, right? And Earth is a mother. There's Mother Earth. There's Father Sky or whatever. I mean, you go down the list of What we in the West would call personifications, but really it's the acknowledgement that all of these bodies are just that. There's consciousness within consciousness within within consciousness, Um, as there are forms within forms within forms. We're a form within the Earth. The Earth is a form within the galaxy, and the galaxy within. The universe. And so it may behoove us t- to ask the question if all of these bodies are conscious within themselves. And if so, then are we not just the daughters and sons of Mother Earth, but do we carry with us Mother Earth's consciousness? And just as we are also expressions of the galaxy and of the universe. We are expressions of, but also, therefore, carry within us the fullness of galactic and universal consciousness. Now, I'm not saying this to be all woo-woo. I'm just asking the question, because ultimately, as we find out, if we don't know it another way, on our undoing.com, all of existence, all of physicality, all of form, resides within and as the expression of formless awareness, of consciousness per se. Consciousness, we want to put it on a timeline and say it comes first, but really consciousness and the physical are symbiotically so. They're they're simultaneously so. Because another word for consciousness per se is being. And what is being doing? Being the physical, at least. And so when we say that beyond the individual is the collective mind, that there is this graphic equalizer, then the personal self is a bit of brain consciousness or body consciousness that wakes up into autonomy. Is that what it takes to be autonomy? And fear. And the reaction of the me is to double down on itself. Not unlike the person who breaks taboos, (laughs) right? I'm going to double down on who I am. I'm going to put that out there as something you want to, well, you don't want to mess with, but you want to know. So if an understanding this dissolves the self, then it's fair to ask who sets the graphic equalizer, but it's also further appropriate to ask if the graphic equalizer is necessary at all. I mean, is that the final, the final question The graphic equalizer? Is that the final state of self beyond the me? Is it to be identified with and as universal consciousness? The mind of the universe at large. Well, it can't be that, can it? If we know that the universe is transcended and included within consciousness per se. So if we back it up, what we see is there are people stuck in their heads with their dysfunctions and their problems and all of that. And they want to be alone. They want to be loners because they're lonely. What they really seek and have buried is relationship. And once we're in relationship, well, that's the proper way to be. There is a right sense of relationship um, in the environment, um, in nature, in ecology, in the way that the universe works, right? So there is this order and this relationship that we seek to tap into because that is more us than us. And this is where you get into sort of the new age woo-woo-y stuff is when people tap that and go, ah, that's it, ah, yeah. But that's not it because that is another level of, if you want to call it illusion, let's call it necessary illusion the illusion that has to be nothingness is expressing everything. And so the universe is necessarily going to be there. It's a necessary illusion. I mean, it's real in and of itself. Um, inseparable from time is the physical, just as thought is inseparable from psychological time. But beyond that is consciousness per se is the timeless. So, not the mind of the universe, but consciousness per se, that is, in simply being, manifesting everything. And when we understand the rigmarole of psychological time, when we firmly, completely, absolutely understand ourselves, that time disappears. Because psychological time, again, is thought. Those thoughts disappear the past projecting a future, that's gone. And now you have the now, the timeless now that transcends and includes everything. So that, not an upgrade, (laughs) spiritual or psychological, is what we need to break out of this definition of human nature. Breaking through that is the ultimate taboo. It's the one we've set up to contain ourselves and say, I am on my own.